0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left and those who passed by deride him wagging their heads saying you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in 3 days save yourself if you are the son of god come down from the cross so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying he saved others he cannot save himself he is the king of israel let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him he trusts in god let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma shamatani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielding up his spirit. And behold, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, And the whole earth shook, and rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God.
1: Let's pray together. Great God of heaven, as we come to your word, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Sitting on the Hill, please take a seat. Welcome to our Good Friday service. As this morning, we do what we do. Every year around this time, and remember the death of Jesus. And and I'm going to be honest, in the interest of full disclosure up front, I'm not always sure how to feel during a Good Friday service. Have, Have you ever had that? Like, I've been to quite a few of these. I've been a Christian a while, and I'm never quite sure am I supposed to feel happy or sad. I've been to a number of planning meetings for Good Friday services. And every year there's the same wrestle. How upbeat do we want to be? How much do we want to lean into the dark or the light? How happy or how sad? It's just a Good Friday thing. Sunday's easy, right? We know how to feel on Sunday. But on Good Friday, it's a strange tension that we navigate. It's an emotionally blurry space that we occupy. Even if you've never been to one of these, even if this is your first time in any church, you've probably picked up the tension a little bit already. Like, Like you probably felt some sort of responsibility to be solemn as you walked in. And yet we've sung songs of joy. But we spend the day reflecting on a death, and yet we call it a good Friday. I mean, take for example, this cross, an instrument of death and torture, and yet it's really pink. (laughs) And the more I look at it, the more I like it, because it, it really does capture what I'm trying to feel, this tension of trying to hold together the light and the darkness. So this morning, we're going to enter into the story of Jesus' death. As Matthew tells us, if you have a Bible, Matthew 27 is where we'll be. But as we do, I want to enter into this emotional tension too. How should we feel when faced with the death of Christ? I'm going to enter into this story in three parts. The first part I've called a death undeserved. The pain of crucifixion was so extreme that there wasn't really a word big enough to capture it. So they came up with a new one. Excruciating. Literally means to torture, torment, or inflict very severe pain on, as if by crucifixion. And it kind of makes sense, because the mechanics of crucifixion are awful. You get nailed to a cross by your hands And your feet, and then the cross gets stood up, and the weight of your body is so extreme that you can't help but slump down. And as you do, it's impossible to breathe. The only way to breathe is to hold yourself up by your arms, and as you do, you become exhausted very quickly, and so down you go again. And so all you need to do is nail someone to a cross and wait for them to suffocate, or for their heart to fail, or for their blood to run dry, whichever comes first. And so as we turn to Matthew's account of the death of Jesus, it's not hard to see the pain of this scene. The sharp thorns twisted into a crown and plunged into his skull. The blood of his wounds that mix with the sweat of his brow to sting his eyes, the, the wounds on his back still roar from when they beat him. His hands and feet throbbing from the nails, and his lungs burning, aching for one more breath. It's not hard to feel the pain of this scene. And yet, as you look closely at what Matthew tells us, it's striking that the verses don't seem to spend much time on the physical pain. He mentions things that must have been painful, but he doesn't dwell on the details. Instead, it seems like he wants to direct our attention somewhere else. And so we don't know the size of the nails. We don't know the number of his wounds, but we do know exactly who mocked him. And exactly what they said to do it. It was those who walked by the cross who shook their heads and threw Jesus' words back in his face as they said in verse 40, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. It was the chief priests, the scribes and the elders who teased him about his claim to be a king saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe in him. Even the criminals on either side had a go. In verse 44, as they begin to mock and revile him in the same way. And at every turn in this story, Matthew is at pains to point out the shame. The sheer humiliation of Jesus hanging on the cross. This is no small suffering. And so, as we look at this shame, as we see this humiliation, as we look at the extent of this pain, all sorts of emotions feel appropriate, don't they? We might well feel sad. We might well be upset and confronted by the gruesome nature of this image. We might well be ashamed of the human capacity for evil. But as we consider the events that put him there, the stories leading up to this story, another feeling rises to the surface. Outrage. There's no doubt that crucifixion is a terrible way to die. It's a cruel and unusual punishment. But it begs the question, what has Jesus done to deserve this? And honestly, it's not abundantly clear. As you read through the Gospels, you can see Jesus has been tried more than once. And at each of his trials, the judges said, well, not much been unwilling to call him guilty because they cannot work out. They just cannot work out what Jesus has done wrong. The only thing that seems clear is that the crowd wants him killed. The charge against him is blasphemy and being a threat to Caesar. But that seems strange because Caesar doesn't look very threatened. And yet for for some reason, time after time, Jesus does not defend himself. At every point along the way, he has an opportunity to speak up, to point out the inconsistencies in the claims against him, to present evidence that would exonerate him. We've seen him call down the power of God before, and he could do it again. In the face of these accusations, Jesus is not powerless, and yet he's quiet, stunningly, blisteringly silent. No reply, no defense. And even Pilate, the governor, who's in charge of his sentencing, he he just can't get his head around it. In verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And we're left wondering, how can it be that this man would be sentenced to death? How is that fair? How is that just? How can this be? And then the scene gets worse. See, each year around this time, it was custom for the governor to release a prisoner to the people. They got to choose someone who would be set free. And so Pilate is kind of crafting. He offers them a choice. In verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now, Barabbas was a notorious criminal. We know from the other gospels that he was the face of a rebel insurrection movement, trying to do whatever he could to overthrow the government. Everybody knew he was a thief and a murderer and he was guilty of treason. By every definition, this guy is a domestic terrorist. And the punishment for that is crucifixion. There is no doubt that Barabbas is guilty and there is no doubt that he deserves everything he has coming to him. And so when Pilate offers the crowd a choice between these two people, Barabbas and Jesus, he's kind of trying to get Jesus out of it. Surely this is an obvious choice. By choosing his most killable criminal, surely the crowd will see sense. Surely they can see who really deserves the cross and who does not. But that's not what happens. In verse 21, the governor said again to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate knows what's on the other side of this. The depths of the pain that awaits the one to be crucified. He understands the injustice of sending Jesus to that fate, and yet he can't stop it. He won't stop it. And so instead he washes his hands of the whole thing. And he delivers Jesus up to be crucified. So as we look at this scene, as we gaze at Jesus on the cross, we see the injustice, the prejudice, the discrimination. We see that this is outrageous. And as we feel the pain and the shame and the outrage... It might seem like the only things here to feel are dark. All there is to see here is darkness and there's no light to be found. And that's true. Unless we're able to look at this story through the eyes of another. So for a moment, I want to imagine what it's like to watch this unfold through the eyes of Barabbas, which brings me to part two, a life undeserved. When Barabbas woke up on Friday morning, he was sure it was going to be his last there's no chances left to him, no appeals process, no loopholes, no hope. Here is a man who's been caught, convicted and sentenced and this is the end of the road. This is the day he dies. And so imagine sitting in that cell knowing today would be your last. You imagine the, the shame that awaits you. You imagine the face on the soldiers as they finally get to beat you. You imagine the pain of the nails in your hands. And then you hear the prison guard begin to walk down the corridor. Your heart speeds up. The lump in your throat grows. And you just wait for him to grab you by the arm and lead you to your death. But he doesn't. Instead, he leans down and unlocks your chains and says to you words you never thought you would hear again Barabbas, you're free. so he walks away and and you just sit there for a moment stunned you stand up and walk through the open door to your cell and nobody stops you you walk past the guards quarters and, and they just watch you go you walk through the prison doors out into the open world a free man But then you notice a crowd is beginning to gather on a hill just outside of town. So you go to see what it's all about and you see this man beaten and bruised. Too weak to carry his own cross so someone else has to carry it for him. And they lead him to this hill. They nail him to the cross. And you stand amongst the crowd, confronted by the fate that you deserved. You see this pain, you see this shame, you see the price that was yours to pay. And as you look at Jesus on the cross, it dawns on you. It should have been me. It should have been me. That hatred should have been mine. That pain belonged to me. That cross had my name on it. And yet, there is another in my place. I wonder, how would Barabbas feel in that moment? This man's taken the punishment that that should have been his, dying the death that he deserved. Now he gets to walk away. I've got to imagine that leaves you feeling a little bit confused, doesn't it? Unsure how you're supposed to feel. Relieved yet guilty. Ashamed yet... Joyful, it's a strange tension to navigate an emotionally blurry space that he occupies. It's light and darkness blended together. And maybe that explains why Good Friday feels so confusing to us too. Because the more we reflect on the experience of Barabbas, the more it becomes clear his story is our story. In so many ways, we are like Barabbas. I don't know whether you've been accused of trying to overthrow any governments lately. But the Bible is pretty clear. We are all guilty of treason against the ruler who made us. God, the rightful king of all creation, the loving maker and sustainer of it, the one who gave us everything, including life itself, And yet we rebel against him. We rise up against him. We reject his authority. We replace him on the throne. And and we just make a mess of the life he's given us. This is a crime punishable by death. And not just any death. An excruciating death. As God distances himself from us. We turn away from the one who gave us life, and he lets us go. We're no longer welcome in his presence, no longer able to get near him. We walk away from him, and so he turns his face away from us. Like Barabbas, treason is our crime. Like Barabbas, death is our penalty. But like Barabbas, someone stands in our place. Someone faces the death that was ours. Someone faced the desertion that we deserved. As Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our nails never come because someone else took them for us. The condemnation and judgment never arrives because another took them in our place. The theological term for that is penal substitution, a penalty that has been paid by a substitute. And I once experienced a fairly mild form of penal substitution when I borrowed a friend's car. I was maybe 20 at the time. No money, heaps of spare time. I was a uni student, and my friend Pete asked if I could drive him and his family to the airport. Now, I had the kind of car you'd expect a uni student to have, and so... His family, his four kids, his wife and him, weren't all going to fit. We had to take his van He's come up with this great plan. We'll go to his house. We'll all jump in the van, head to the airport. I'll bring the van back to his place, drive home. Foolproof. Or so I thought. Because in my 20-year-old wisdom, after dropping them off at the airport, I decided to go and see some friends in the city in the van. Little did I know that in my short trip to the city... I'd managed to park illegally and a very diligent parking inspector wanted me to know that, so kindly gifted me with a parking ticket on the windscreen. Here's the thing though, the van was so big and I was trying so hard not to crash it that I never saw the parking ticket. So now I'm the guy who doesn't just incur the penalty I leave it on the windscreen for someone else to deal with. (laughs) Sometime later, I discovered what had happened, and and I was just totally horrified. So I ran up to Pete and said, Pete, I'm so sorry. I think I got a parking ticket with your car. Send it my way. I'd love to pay it. And Pete smiles and reaches into his wallet and pulls out this small piece of paper. On the piece of paper was my offence the price that I owed, and then in Pete's handwriting, in big red letters across the middle, three words, paid in full. I said, Pete, don't be silly. (laughs) Let, Let me pay for this, it's totally my fault. Let me give you some money. He said, Dave, I don't want your money. I said, why not? And I'm not kidding, he said, because one day, you're going to have to explain penal substitution to people. (laughs) And I think this would be a good illustration. (laughs) And so I tell you that partly so that now me and Pete (laughs) are even. I use the illustration, we're square. But mostly because he's right. That's exactly how it works. It's absolutely my fault, and he absolutely paid it all. I owed a price, a penalty, a punishment, and someone else paid it for me. And I'm going to tell you, in that moment, even though it was a very small example, even then, I didn't quite know how to feel. Relieved yet guilty. Ashamed yet joyful somehow. And this is just a tiny glimpse of what Barabbas experiences. And we've got to get our heads around this, because when it comes to Barabbas... His story is our story. His sin is our sin and his substitute is also our substitute. If we believe in Jesus, our penalty has been paid. It's not ours to bear anymore and the nails will never come. God will not turn his back on us. How do we know? That brings us to part three. Temples, tombs, and tables. Here's the moment of Jesus' death according to Matthew. In verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It's kind of matter of fact. right? Very short verse to describe a very big event. But there's not much detail, there's not much emotion until we carry on and things get wild. Look at verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. All right, let's start to get this clear. Jesus dies and there's an earthquake. Rocks start splitting open. It's a whole thing. And then the curtain of the temple tears in two. The religious center of God's people, the temple, had this giant curtain, which was there to separate us from God in the temple, you don't have free access to God. Only one person once a year is allowed in after all these rituals and sacrifices. We need to be separate because of our sin. Until Jesus died. And the curtain was torn in two. And now you can walk right in. And then it gets wilder. Did you notice this was read? Meanwhile, back at the cemetery in verse 52, the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The dead people were raised to life again. I've been to church a lot of times, and even I think this is wacky. It says they've fallen asleep, which is code for died because they're in tombs after all. But I like falling asleep as a term because it implies... They're going to get up again. And when Jesus dies, the dead people just get up. Now, if you've got questions, that's okay. So do I. This is weird. But we'll get to the resurrection. Okay, hang in there like 48 hours. God will answer all your questions. But for now, just think about what this scene tells us. Why Matthew puts it right here after the death of Christ The temple and the tombs tell us that death and distance from God are finished. Jesus dies, the curtain rips, the dead are raised because death and distance from God is not our reality anymore. For all who put their trust in Jesus, death has been replaced by life. Distance from God is replaced by love, and now He invites us to come to Him. He welcomes us in with all of our sin, with all of our pain, all of our shame, all of our guilt. Bring it all, because He longs to welcome you with open arms. For death and distance are not your story anymore. So, what do we do with that? Like if that's true, what do we do about this earth-shaking reality? Well, I want to tell you one thing you can't do, one thing you must not do, and that's this. Don't crucify yourself. Don't keep punishing yourself if someone's already paid the price. How strange it would be for me to go and pay that parking ticket a second time. How strange it would be for Barabbas to see that he was free and walk straight back into his cell all by himself. How strange it would be for us to see that Jesus has paid our penalty and then continue to punish ourselves for our sin. The price has been paid. You're free now. The guilt is not yours anymore the shame is not yours anymore so please don't approach God like he still wants to punish you he's already poured out his punishment and now there's none left for us instead he just wants us to come The whole reason there's a substitute is because he has such an incredible love for us. So don't crucify yourself. Jesus already did that for you. It's not your cross. They're not your nails. It's not your pain. It's not your shame. It's not your guilt anymore because Jesus has paid for all of it. He stands in your place. So don't crucify yourself. Instead, I've got a better idea. As the band comes up, communion distributors take their places. Here's what I think we should do on this Good Friday. Come to the table. Accept God's open invitation and come to this family Meal. Jesus gave his followers a meal just before he died. He said, eat this bread and remember that my body was broken for you. Take this cup and remember that my sh- blood was shed for you. Take this meal and remember that he died in our place as our substitute. He paid our price so that we can go free. So if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, that's fine. It's great that you're here. Let me invite you to stay where you are and reflect on the meaning of Good Friday. But if you want to become one, if you want to accept the invitation to come to God, if you want to accept his offer of free forgiveness, if you want to accept Jesus as your substitute... If you're tired of feeling guilty and ashamed if you're tired of feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders because you can't deal with your failures or you can't deal with the pressures of being successful all the time if you're tired come to Jesus accept his invitation and his offer of forgiveness and come and take communion We've got a bag for you if you'd like to become a Christian. In there are some great gifts and resources. I'd love you to take one of them. So so what's going to happen is we're going to have a family meal now. And for all who believe in Jesus, whether they've had this meal a thousand times or this is the first time, we're going to come and enjoy the gift that God has given us. My first communion was on a Good Friday. Good day to try it, I reckon. Come and put your faith in Jesus for the first time or for the thousandth time and enjoy this meal. If you're online, grab some bread, grab some juice. If you're at our Ivers service, there's some instructions for you. But for us, here's how this is going to work. In just a moment, God's going to come up and he's going to retell the story of when Jesus gave us this meal. The band will play a little and we'll all come down through these aisles. If you're taking communion for the first time and become a Christian, there'll be a prayer team at the corners with some bags. Don't have to say anything. Just reach out and take one. And then come to one of these tables. And as you do, staff are going to distribute communion, give you a cup with a little wafer on top so that we might remember the death of Jesus. But, but then they're going to do something incredibly bold. They're going to tell you how to feel. With these words, take and drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Be thankful. There it is. The resolution to the emotional tension of Good Friday. Be thankful. Come and remember Jesus' death. Come and remember that his blood was shed for you in your place. Remember that it's not yours to pay any more. And then be thankful.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.